Welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast, where we continue being contrarians by publishing Christmas content in the middle of summer. Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you've never heard an episode of The Final Ghost before, we take a horror trope and extend it and dive into it in excruciating detail sometimes. We're currently in the final, final episode of this fourth series of the podcast where we're looking at teen horror movies in depth very much bending the definition of who gets to be a teen in horror movies and really focusing on why teenagers and especially teenage girls make for some of the most compelling protagonists and sometimes villains of the genre. I have been on holiday recently which explains but does not excuse the little gap between episodes but but this week we've got a 90 minute super sized episode going very much in depth on the plot, the horror, the teenness, the release, the reception or lack of thereof of the 2019 Black Christmas. Joining me in this episode is friend of the pod and podcaster Becky Dark. We actually recorded this episode in person, which seems like a wild concept, and quite a little while ago. And I've been sitting on it for a bit, and re-listening to this episode was a fascinating experience because so many things have changed, and actually not that many things have changed at all since we recorded it. A quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Final Ghost UK. And if you have a few seconds to spare, please do leave us a review over on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. As per usual, please do note that we spoil everything pretty much from the beginning. If you've seen the original Black Christmas from the 70s, this film doesn't really have that much to do with it plot-wise. Um, but it does have a really intriguing twist to it. So if you haven't seen it, keep that in mind. Uh, but hopefully you will be convinced to give this film a chance if you haven't yet. And with all of that said, please enjoy our take on Black Christmas 2019. Start. Becky, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for asking me. We've been texting a lot about this. We have, yeah. <laughs> this is uh, this but, is a hot topic. Yeah, about the pre, even about when we we're going to go see the film. Yeah. After. Yeah. There's a lot of it. Yeah. Um, so when and how did you first see the 2019 version of Black Christmas? I had a wonderful day between Christmas and New Year when I took myself off and saw three different films at the cinema. It was one of the best days of my holiday. It was amazing. So I went and saw Little Women first, and then I went and saw Uncut Gems, and then I came back and um, saw the 10 o'clock showing of Black Christmas um, at the big view at Westfield. So very sort of, you know, palatial surroundings. Um, and surprisingly for a 10 o'clock viewing, there were a fair number of people in the screening. Oh, that's great. Um, I'd say there was like me, 
sort of sat on my own in the middle and then maybe half a dozen couples. So for a kind of late night between Christmas and New Year showing, um, it had a decent turnout. But, you know, I think this already brings us on to the point that the only showings that I could get to were that crazy like late night shot slot um that crazy late night slot where it was like in some ways it kind of helped me build my cinema day because you know it was good that there was a late showing but that was the only one I got to choose for Black Christmas I remember when I was uh when we were talking about this and I was trying to find the screening of it on release and a few weeks a few weeks after Mm -hmm. because I saw this in the new year already um there was only 11 p.m. Yeah. or midnight screenings in the weekdays in in sort of in 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 multiplexes so cinemas like Odeon Review yeah and no independence uh which I thought was quite interesting and it was just obnoxious like if I if I wanted to see that film I'd have to go out on midnight on midnight on a Wednesday yeah to a cinema where I'd have to get public transport and by the time I got out of the film probably public transport was not available anymore Mm -hmm. and this is such minutia but it informs people's decision to go see a film or not of course it does yeah and I ended up seeing it at a midday screening because again I'm a freelancer so I can do that yep um in Islington at a view and I was by myself entirely were you Oh my goodness, the dream cinema experience. Dream and also harsh. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for someone who actually does enjoy that. I mean, it doesn't bode well for the film, but I did actually enjoy being in the cinema by myself. Yeah. Coincidentally, two random fellas came in mid-screening, but an hour in, wandered right in front of me, sort of stood at the back for a minute. I think they were in the wrong cinema. Right. And then wandered back out. But literally, were wandering back and forth in front of me for a solid couple minutes. That's were, crazy. They were very confused about where they were, <laughs> and that's when the slashing had already started. So I bet they were doubly confused. To be fair, if that was like the midnight screening, I'd have thought like, oh, well, they were probably drunk. But I mean, they were having a great Wednesday at midday if they were drunk at that yeah. point and confused. <laughs> I think they were, but you know, great experiences all around. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, in my screening, a guy kept, I think he worked for the cinema, at least I hope he did, um, kept coming in through the door at the bottom. He had a high-vis on, would just walk up the right-hand aisle, stand at the top for a couple of minutes, and then just walk back down and let himself out again. He did that like three or four times through the course of the film. So distracting. So distracting. And also, when you're watching a slasher film, it's like, and it's very dark, you know, it's like, who is that guy? Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but so basically, not optimal viewing experiences for either of us. Then. Yeah. Definitely. But what did you think of the film? I was very pleasantly surprised. Did you have low expectations going in? Um, relatively. Mm. I'm a massive fan of the original. Um, quite a recent discovery of mine. Um, but one of those ones that you kind of watch it and think oh my god like why have I waited this long to watch it you know why hasn't this been in my life forever um really you know it's just it's such a quality film and I I really really enjoy it and it has kind of snuck its way onto my um festive watch list now which is nice to kind of break up the 
otherwise quite sort of candy schmaltz of Christmas time. Well, apart from Die Hard, of course. There you go. Um, Home Alone, Die Hard, Black Christmas. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Bit of everything for everyone. Um, always Meet Me in St. Louis as well. And some Muppet Christmas Carol. Lovely. What a lovely festival. I know. It's eclectic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but with... So I've never seen the 2006 re- remake. Yeah, nobody used to see that. No. That's what I've heard. Um, and then when this one came out... Um, I watched the trailer and was very unenthusiastic about it. I thought that the trailer gave away, like it was really long. It seemed to give away tons. It just, I, I remember sort of commenting afterwards to somebody like, why do people make trailers where they're essentially just showing the whole film start to end? I think like that's really a, odd. That's a big issue in general. Yeah. Yeah, like m- film trailers... I remember there was in the early 2010s, and I want to say this is around, especially David Fincher's The Social Network, which mm. sort of kickstarted a trend in film trailers. You know the thing that is everywhere now. It's dissipated a little bit of kind of taking uh, a very well-known pop song, doing a cover of it, <laughs> putting it on top of the trailer, mm-hmm. but not actually making it more of a mood piece as opposed to a a plot trailer yeah so you're not actually doing the whole thing of in a world where a mummy comes back to life it's more of a this is the story of a loner who gets really angry because he's rejected so he builds a multi-billion social network that will transform communication as we know it forever yeah but he did it just because he got rejected you know when the song is creep by radiohead but in a sort of acapella like played, version played yeah on a uh, like mandolin or something yeah and you <laughs> see that a lot in so many trailers and the other the other kind of version of those are the ones where they just explain everything mm-hmm. um so you don't actually have to see the film because you sort of have already seen it in two and a half minutes yeah exactly and that's very much how i felt coming off of the black christmas trailer um i noticed in it a couple of kind of beats that i thought were reminiscent of the original I wasn't entirely sure how I kind of felt about that um and then I kind of decided that I wasn't going to see it at the cinema and was going to wait for it to come out on streaming or um like you know show on tv or whatever Mm -hmm. probably not show on tv because that'd be years ago years away but you know I thought I'm not going to pay money to go and see it Mm. um and then when it hit cinemas, all of the pale, stale males took to social media and started slagging it off and saying that it was dreadful and saying that it was too woke and saying it was too feminist for its own good and saying that it had um, good intentions, but, you know, it just hadn't managed to pull off what it was trying to do. And I thought... I'm going to love this. <laughs> I thought if these guys all hate it as much as they do, I am going to love this film. And that's when I decided to go and see it. When all of the people whose opinions I don't particularly respect mm. because they don't like the types of films that I like and I don't tend to like the f- sorts of films that they like. I was like, when they started slacking it off, I was like, this is going to be right up my street. I love it. I also love the, the the review or tweet that you quoted of it's too feminist for its own good. Um, 
in general, I think as most women, I love it when men tell me what's feminist and what's not. And me too. I the love limits that. of feminism mm-hmm. bodes really well. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that it's kind of intentionality is the thing that those pale male and stale critics or influencers <laughs> i can't even say it seriously <laughs> uh, <laughs> took as offensive yeah. to a degree because it's like oh well is why is that you know why is that not a plausible shtick that a film can use to well a market itself and b be a response to something that is going on um in a much much wider sense culturally in a way the original black christmas also had quite a lot of political uh kind of meanings you know it famously talks about abortion and female sexuality in a very non-judgmental way which is not what we usually see from and women having women having flaws you know um margot kidder's um character being you know essentially an alcoholic but shown in a very sympathetic way Hmm. you know her being allowed to have that flaw I mean I know that she then gets you know stabbed to death by a crystal unicorn or whatever but still you're right you know it had a lot of um a lot of like it was a very progressive film 100% yeah, yeah exactly um and yeah, you say, you know, it, the the kind of intentionality of this film seems to have really rubbed some of those um, men up the wrong way. Um, but I noticed in a lot of the reception to the film that as well as that, the other side that seemed to be used against it was, oh, they tried. Oh, well done, baby. They had they like they had a nice idea, didn't they? But they didn't quite pull it off. Like just review after review, so many of them were. Oh well, it had good intentions, but it doesn't quite work. Firstly, my question would be, how do you know what their intentions were? And secondly, I disagree that the intentions that you are placing onto the writers and onto the film are unsuccessful because they're sort of saying, you know, oh, well, you know, they're trying to um, lay this veil of um, kind of wokeness and feminism onto um, the kind of classic slasher Uh, formula um but unfortunately because there's no tension and there's no scares um and all of the writing is far too on the nose you know it was a nice try um but unfortunately it just doesn't work and it's like they're trying to point out like oh i get it i get what you were trying to do i understand these issues but oh shame it didn't work so okay well firstly you probably don't really understand these issues and i think it's kind of adorable that you're trying to pretend that you do um and secondly who are you to say that it didn't work when the film isn't for you i think it pisses them off that it has tried to and in my opinion succeeded in finding a different audience that isn't them Mm. 
I this is going to be super ranty, Anna. I'm really sorry. No, no, I'm just no, so no, no. pissed off. I think you're bringing up a lot of really, really good points. There's so many things there. So A, one of those is kind of who is the film for? Mm. You know, we, the whole reason we're doing this, the whole reason um, of we started the Final Girls was because we were always told that horror films were not for us, mm-hmm. that we were not welcome in those rooms that our knowledge was always challenged, that we were not the design audience, and by that extension, our enjoyment of genre was problematic or even fake. Like, we were faking it in order to impress a man. Uh The amount of times that I've been growing up to horror festivals before I started, way before I started working in film, and was always sort of tapped on the... the on the head and be like oh are you here for your boyfriend mm. it's like no i'm here by myself i'm here by myself because i want to see some flashes and some vampire films thank you very much mm. but the other point is also that the intentions of the filmmaker um what was i gonna say the intentions of the filmmaker might be political but that doesn't mean if they don't enjoy the film it doesn't mean that it doesn't succeed in its intentions. No, exactly. Because they, as far as I read, intended this film to obviously comment on contemporary toxic culture, but also be an invitation for a different type of audience, namely younger women, Mm -hmm. to enjoy a slasher film that was made with them in mind. I would also like to point out that it's not the first slasher film that is decidedly writing in feminist critique into a genre that was transformed into something something that was not on the surface welcoming to women because let's remember the summer party massacre trilogy which was entirely written and directed by women and remains the only slasher franchise that has been made entirely by female creatives and how wonderful are those films I mean, the first one, I think, is an unsung masterpiece. The second one is really fucking weird. The third one, <laughs> best not to talk about it So too I much. haven't seen the third one. I agree that the first one is a masterpiece. The second one is fucking weird. But you know what? I really love it. It's really enjoyable. <laughs> Genuinely, I do believe that film should be like a, a cult classic yeah. that is screened with sing-alongs yeah. all the time. <laughs> because it's got a guitar drill. And musical numbers in it. Oh, so it's fantastic. Good. So so good. But then the other thing is that there's there's an underlying vitriol in all the conversations that we've had by the film, and I think it's a failing in its distribution, at least here, that the audience that is intended for the film has not been invited to create opinions on it. Yeah, exactly. The fact that you do the same basic model as for any horror film with one that is very very specifically inviting a young female audience to enjoy it and i'm sure there's going to be stuff there that is more for a gen z generation young women that is going to go over my head because i haven't been to university in 2019 yeah that is not my lived experience But I can relate to a lot of other things and I can see what they're trying to do. And the thing that I feel very disappointed about is the fact that there's a lot of subtleties and humor in it and satire as well that is, I've not really seen reflected in any of the conversation that I've seen online about it. No. And it's a pity because it's a really fun film. It definitely wears its politics on its sleeve yeah. for sure. 
it's not the first or the only yeah. one why is it a problem when it's um <laughs> woke politics i just say that i don't think it's entirely true why is it not a problem when it's um angry young men why is joker not problematic but and you know critically acclaimed and a massive box of success but a feminist black christmas and let's just say the original black christmas is also a feminist yes. slasher is somehow problematic it's just this thing about women are not allowed to be angry and men are allowed to be angry and then they get critically acclaimed for it as well but we're not even going to try to engage with the thoughts and the satire that's present in black christmas because you know like you said it's just getting like all the woke shit again yeah like, come on calm down yeah I saw one review that said that they had tried and failed to make a get out with women. Now, what? <laughs> so I think the point, I think the point that they were trying to make was this whole thing about it wearing its politics on its, on the, its sleeve. And, you know, it's produced by Blumhouse just as mm. Get Out was. And the, um, the writers had come along and they'd seen that Get Out was this hugely successful, popular um, horror film uh, with, you know, obviously African-American um struggles at its heart and at um, the centre of its politics and these women writers had seen that and thought right well we could do something similar that with that but with women's struggles and women's issues and women's politics and that they had tried to do that and therefore failed now I don't I liked this film it's no get out right no <laughs> it's, it's it not as good as get out and I don't think it's even trying to do that I, well firstly I disagree with that reviewer that yeah. it is trying to do that. But secondly, there's something at the root of that that this white male reviewer is willing to get on board with the politics of um, African-American issues being worn on the film's sleeve, but not when it's female issues so why even though this guy is from a different race than the issues in get out is he perfectly willing to sort of engage in that experience and experience that film um in a kind of empathetic and genuine way but he won't do that with a film that is women's issues being worn on its sleeve now again i do think it's important to reiterate that black christmas 2019 isn't as good as get out but that isn't the point that the reviewer was trying to make i think he was saying oh you know bless them they've come along and they've seen it and they've tried to make get out with females instead of black people i think it's the same as trying to say that horror has only gotten political recently <laughs> Which, which is a statement that is so ludicrous it isn't it's barely worth even discussing i mean we're not going to discuss that statement it's just pure ignorance mm. you know all art and all horror is political especially i'd say i'd argue in cinema horror is extremely political because it allows filmmakers and artists to talk about taboo subjects because they're covered up with a commercial framework and with language that is accessible and understandable to anyone because it taps, to, taps into a very basic universal human feeling which is fear but still they use that to talk about di many different subjects yeah. you know get out as a fantastic thriller horror film but it uses that format to talk about very 
real issues that exist, particularly in the United States. Yeah. And this film uh, has an additional pressure, which, again, makes it very unfair to compare it to Get Out because Get Out is an original script. It has nothing to compare itself to. Obviously, a lot of influences and stuff like that. That's not what I mean. Black Christmas has a legacy in in the horror canon. It's got a very beloved original, a film that basically invented the slasher format. So it's extremely revered. It's got a very failed uh, initial remake that nobody really talks about. And then comes along this team with another remake of the same property. So there's already an underlying set of expectations and a comparison that will inevitably happen and obviously has happened. So I think it's almost, you know, it's unfair to talk about that film comparing it to something that was entirely an original production from someone who, you know, is a huge talent, Mm. but also had not proven himself at that time in the horror space. And now is one of the most, if not the most exciting voice, making tons of new films, both his own. Obviously, I'm talking about Jordan Peele here. Both his own, also empowering new filmmakers, making TV, readapting classics like The Twilight Zone and Candyman. And also, you know, consistently supporting and empowering new creative voices, not just his own. So that ended (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that was i think there was already a desire to not like this film oh yeah and i think that bias going into the cinema particularly from people who have a platform to talk about film is deeply disrespectful to any filmmaker like i'm with you i did not necessarily love the film I thought it was very smart. I thought it was very funny. And I thought it was very clearly made by female creatives. Yes. And I think it definitely speaks to women in a very specific way. Yes. And not in a way that is very on the nose. It's politics are on the nose. Its themes are right there. They're extremely explicit. That's not because of sloppy screenwriting. That is that's, there. Yeah. That's deliberate. Absolutely. And even I think it satirizes aggressive wokeness to a degree. Mm-hmm. So I think this criticism of it being too well, woke for its own good it, it is definitely does. Like, have you seen the film? Have the you really seen it? The character of Chris is absolutely satirized with yes. her sort of um like gnashing um you know her trying to get everybody to sign those um petitions against the (laughs) all-male white uh, literary canon of course it's satirized i the first um critical response that i saw was from a very prominent member of the horror community um He's somebody who I know is very respected and has, like, he tweeted about it. It was, like, a one-line response. I know that he's got a lot of followers. I know that he's got a lot of respect and a lot of influence. And I personally think that um, for people who have that sort of platform, who are so far removed from the experiences that are presented in the film and from the audience that a film is aimed at to tweet out something along the lines of black christmas is atrocious full stop send tweet 
is irresponsible and I think that that's like that's not a um isolated um response it was probably the shortest response that I saw and it was the first response that I saw but the fact that firstly publications aren't putting female reviewers out to review this film I think is irresponsible and secondly fine if you're a guy who is um assigned Black Christmas to review I think that you have a responsibility to look beyond the end of your nose and try to appreciate it in a critical way rather than as you said you know looking at it through the same framework as every other horror film and trying to assume what it was trying to achieve making judgments about whether you think it achieved that or not you know I understand that this that's what criticism is and that's what film critics do but I just think that you know the the knock-on effect for this particular film has been so palpable in terms of it having such a terrible rating on Rotten Tomatoes and other um, you know Metacritic and other um, aggregation sites and um, you know the fact that you and I could barely get to see it unless we were willing to go at like late at night or as you say you know you're a freelancer so you were able to go Mm. at the one kind of midday screening you know these sorts of responses to the film I think have had a very palpable effect on this specific film and I think you're right I think that there was a conscious effort to dislike it and I think that it means that this film will be swept under the carpet and underappreciated and that isn't what it deserves absolutely I completely agree with you and it's I think there is a huge responsibility by critics to acknowledge their own bias and I'd like to just say that I don't expect or even want any film that's written or directed by women to be excellent. I want them to, I want everyone to be able to have the ability to make shit films. Yeah. I want women to be able to fail as much as men do without having to then be punished for the entirety, for the rest of their careers. Like if someone, if one of, if Sofia Coppola makes her cats, I'm going to go see it and I'm going to say it's shit in the same way that I'm going to say that Tom Hooper's cats is shit. Yeah. But the point being that it's not just because it's written and directed by women that we're having this conversation. It's because the the bias by the critiques of it has been so oh, so obvious. Mm. It's irresponsible, like you say. Because I think if you are in a position of media privileged or you have a platform, whatever that may be, be that your influence or your uh, Twitter account or the outlet that you write for, I don't think just women should be reviewing films made by women. I think just that's also lazy journalism to a degree. The fact that assuming that a female film critic would see so many more things than a male critic would because then that just means that they're put on the women's beat and not sent to review you know yes, fast no, and that's, furious that's absolutely right and nobody's going to say that balance, women can't re- review films that are yeah. just you know solely about men so i think i think the balance I mean, is there right. it is it is kind of quite palpable that all of the female genre journalists critics influencers that i've seen 
have been, you know, if not effusive about the film, they've been intelligent in their criticism. Yes. They've not been needlessly dismissive. They might have been dismissive about its cinematic qualities, but they haven't just said, oh, it's tried and it's failed. Mm-hmm. It's to me too. Mm-hmm. That's not a great sentence, but essentially that's what it says. And it's, I think in a few years, um, the film will gain so much more relevance. And I know this is, you know, not uh, a consolation prize, but I think it's a film that's come out at such a tense moment. Yeah. That it's, it's fallen in a, in a cultural position where, it's not being buried, but its right audience hasn't found it. And it, you know, it, it's possible that the right audience hasn't found it because the critical reception has been so bad. And you know, you're absolutely right. Women should be allowed to make shit films, and men should be allowed to review films that are by and for women, and vice versa. But this film isn't that bad. Like. I, we wouldn't be having this conversation if it was a shit horror film directed, written and directed by women that had got a terrible reception. Mm. The fact is, it's not that bad. I enjoyed it. I gave I really it three and a it. half stars out of five because I was just like, yeah, that was pretty good. And I got a lot out of it. It made me jump. Um, I thought that there was tension in it. I thought the writing was very smart. I thought Imogen Poots was excellent oh yes um you know i thought that there was like genuinely a lot in its favor i will watch that film again so rant over (laughs) let's talk about the film because i made like eight pages of notes Mm. while i was watching it because it's hella dense yeah okay so you mentioned it already but what were um what did you think of the film itself Forget about kind of the distribution, Mm -hmm. the marketing, the critiques, kind of the film itself. Did you enjoy it? What did you think of it as a whole? Yeah, so, you know, as I say, I think it was a decent slasher. Um, It wasn't, so my taste in horror film, it wasn't quite bloody and gory enough for me. I like a bit of blood, I like a bit of gore. Mm -hmm. Um, It was like very PG-13, there was a lot of kind of cutaways at the um, crucial kind of kill moments. Um, I I like my movies to be a little bit more graphic than it was. Um, I like my horror films to scare me. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, this isn't a film that has kind of kept me awake at night since, but... It did have a couple of decent jump scares in it that made me jump in the cinema. Um, me there on my own with my popcorn surrounded by late night couples, you know, sort of jumping away to myself. Um, I thought it had decent tension. I thought the opening scene um, where the character Lindsay is first being um, kind of stalked yes. down the street as she's walking home on it's her own. It's one of my favourite scenes. Really, really effective, I thought. Mm -hmm. A lot of the um, reviews that I've seen have sort of said that um, the film didn't um, build any tension. But I wonder with that, like, well, you know, I think tension is subjective. Like what makes you tense is different to what what makes me tense. And potentially what makes young women tense is very different to what makes 
kind of big gruff old men tents like we were talking a little bit before we started recording that about that scene and the fact that it so very simply taps into a, a genuinely um this feeling or this constant constant ever present fear of being followed mm-hmm. um of being by yourself on the street in the dark mm-hmm. and i think that's something that not that many men feel i'm not gonna say that all men mm-hmm. <laughs> hashtag not all men <laughs> but which is used in the film yeah to a brilliant effect <laughs> <laughs> but i think it sort of taps into this particular balance of performing not being afraid getting ready for something potentially happening yeah and also trying to get away as fast as possible yeah that being, weird being sentiment. aware of um where is there around here that's got lights on i couldn't run down there because you know it's a dark alley um you know where's the nearest public space that i could get to what have i got on my feet shit i've worn my high heels i'm an idiot you know all of that stuff um the thing with the keys oh it's my fi- when that thing happened i was like yes yeah i can tell is that the first time you've seen that on film i think i've seen it in short films okay i haven't seen it i don't think none of them come to mind right now i don't think i've ever seen it in a feature and it was it was this weird thing of it's so familiar um i've done it i've had my friends sort of independently tell me that they've done it you know not like not like i tell them and then they're like i've done that like i know that you know women do it and I saw um, some stuff uh, on socials um, before I'd actually seen the film, talk like uh, showing surprise, like, oh my God, like I didn't realize that this was a thing. And I was surprised that there was surprise because to me, and I think to our group, um, it's so uh, common and like, it, it's just ingrained. Like I was amazed that people didn't know about it. And it was therefore really cool because it's so ingrained. It was so cool to see it on screen and then especially for it to be used to its ultimate effect where she jabs them into that guy's throat and actually kills him with them. You know, that, yeah, it was really powerful. I know, I loved it. That was one of the the subtleties of the film. And I think the film, the, the best thing about it was the script and how the on the nose woke politics actually distracted from the very subtleties that are presented about um being a young woman in that world Mm -hmm. and you know it's obviously set in a sorority and there's a there's quite a large conflict with the fraternity and there's already a conflict between and this is very 2019 of you know um our generation and the younger generation being extremely more politically engaged and very active with enacting change which is definitely a generational thing, you know, of young students trying to actively change the curriculum because they see the inherent problematics of it, because it is offensive to not just them, but more than one group of people, Mm. of questioning authority, 
all of those things of questioning the canon and what are quote unquote the proper classics <sighs> yeah you know which is exactly what we're doing here right now as well to you know a much lesser extent in a sense but it's questioning what is good and mm. who decides what makes what good exactly that's exactly. the thing and that narrative there that's so much more subtle than you know oh there's a character who's an outspoken feminist activist and that's the power of the film that mm. i think has completely been ignored or just not been realized whether that's because people haven't put the effort into looking for it because they'd kind of dismissed it before they even went in um or whether it's because it's an experience that those people just aren't familiar with and you just so don't they're unable it. to see it um it takes a lot of empathy yeah um to be able to engage with other people's experiences yeah. and accept them as reality because it if takes it empathy and it also takes like a lack of ego i think a, a, a sort of tacit admission that my experience isn't the only experience and my um my outlook and opinion on things isn't the only outlook and opinion mm. um to be able to go into something open-minded um we talked a you mentioned a bit that it wasn't gory enough <laughs> for you which i kind of agree i sort of I ignored the trailer on purpose, but I did sort of expect it to be a bit more violent than it was. Mm. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's what the film is. Um, but did you, what were kind of some of the, of the gory or more violent scenes that you enjoyed? Um, well, so the keys in the throat was brilliant. Um, I particularly liked uh, Professor uh, Gelson, I think his name was, but um, basically the character played by the magnificent Carrie Elwes. Oh, he's um, so fantastic. He was so good. I squealed I when he came on screen. Him. I Did you not? I hardly recognised him. It took me a while. Really? Because I hadn't, like, I hadn't looked into a lot about the film before I went to see it. Yeah. Um, and really was just kind of uh, spurred on by all the hatred on the, on the internet about it um i didn't know he was in it ahead of time yeah neither did i and then he comes on screen and i'm like who is that who is that and it's so annoying in the cinema because usually if i was watching it on tv mm. i just immediately look it up mm. on imdb and you can't do that in the cinema and so i was i was actually having to use my brain and my memory to try and figure it out and then the penny dropped um at the scene where um imogen poots his character and uh him are just about to go into the frat house and like she's there and then he turns up and there's that sort of confrontation yeah. that goes on um and he said something and suddenly it clicked i was like oh my god of course he was, was so good he was excellent really he's good. such a charming yeah. graceful actor but there's such a an anger to him that i love i mean i'm i've probably watched the princess bride and saw um, <laughs> yeah. yeah you know more times that is advisable <laughs> but so i i know kind of what he looks depends like depends who's giving you the advice anna i yeah. mean <laughs> um so i clocked who he was but my favorite bit was when um 
when we first see the inside of the frat house, there's portraits of all the previous kind of head boys or whatever they are. Um, And there's a picture of painting of young Carrie Elvis. And I was like, that is literally a still from The Princess Bride. Oh my God. That is literally Wesley. And they've made it into an oil painting. And I want that in my house. Missed that. How do we get those? I want one. You should get one. We can have matching portraits. I mean, there's a portrait of Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy in the Jane Austen Museum in Bath. Why can't we get the Carrie Elvis poster? Yeah. Based on that. That's great (laughs) merchandising. I mean. Let's write to Jason Blum and see what he can do. Oh, yes. Um, (laughs) um, But anyway, so uh, with uh, with that character, with the professor character, I loved it when he was set on fire. That was there was just something very cathartic about that for me, especially as he then torches the frat house and the whole. I mean, you mentioned before we started recording, but essentially the big bad in this is the patriarchy, the patriarchy. And the fact that him being immolated then kind of I'm doing, you know, air quotes, burns the patriarchy to the ground. You literally, was, I had very a note satisfying. at the end. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> they literally burn down the house. They burn the house of men. They burn the patriarchy. It's beautiful. I wish we had the rights to play the Buffering the Vampire Slayer podcast little yes. jingle of the patriarchy. Because <laughs> it's great. <laughs> oh, if only. My favorite one is one, Nate who is the boyfriend of one of the girls, mm-hmm. I think it's of Jesse. Yeah. He comes back after they've had a row and he comes back in and he's sort of affected by the black man juice thing <laughs> and comes in striding. And you kind of see him switch from his own self. He comes back to apologize and suddenly he's like, here is a real man. And then he gets an ax in the face <laughs> right at he's saying, man. <laughs> Which I found really funny because the actor's delivery was so funny and yeah. he switched registers so quickly in that scene. I was like, this is this is beautiful. He this was is... very good. He was yeah. very good, yeah. After he had his sort of angry, spooky migraine. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the girls um trying to, you know, remember their names. But so they've got the classic um uh, like female horror trope thing with their names where there's five of them mm-hmm. the four are riley chris marty and jesse very gender neutral names gender neutral yeah um or i mean if i saw if i saw the list riley chris marty and jesse i would probably um like automatically think that those were boys if i didn't yeah. know they were girls so they're like the four who are kind of um, up against the patriarchy, up against the frat boys. And then there's Helena, mm-hmm. who obviously has a very feminine name. Yes. Who is the one who wants to be like the good woman. Oh, I see where you're going with this. Very good. Just, just a small observation. No, I, I love it. I love it. It's another subtlety of the script that yeah. I hadn't even clocked. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, because Helena is the traitor to the group yeah where she is you know working in cahoots with the frat boys to help them uh, murder the girls and she's been stealing from the sorority house she's been stealing like their effects hasn't she so Mm. she's got (laughs) the diva cup for one thing um and the other bits and pieces that all the girls Mm. have lost which again is uh 
which is quite witchy in its kind of like black magic mm-hmm. you know you have to have um like somebody's personal effect to yeah. be able to well target them what did you think about the whole occult twist of the film i mean did it work for you yeah it did chuck a bit of a cult into anything and i'll love yeah, it fair enough. i mean you talk about you know preaching to the converted <laughs> but um yeah so for me i think it it added an extra layer that um brought it far enough away from the 1974 version that it just kind of uh added an extra um it helped the film stand on its own two feet a little more so for me when that was kind of revealed um yeah i was into it what did you think i mean like you say chuck a bit of a cult magic shit in, and in. i'm already in yeah black man juice goo <laughs> um i mean it i think it was fairly predictable in a sense i'm not gonna fault it against it because it was surprising because it sort of took away from the from the original yeah. i was like oh okay this is something entirely different that works very well for the commentary that you're trying to make and i think that's what remakes should be there for they're there to give a different spin to the story you know we've already got the 1974 black christmas that ain't never gonna change yeah that's an excellent film we can keep going back to that we don't need another shot by shot remake i want something new like luca guadagnino's Suspiria was to dario argento's Suspiria. entirely different the premise is the same name is the same whatever brand ip recognition all of that but the take that the filmmaker gives it is entirely different. So I appreciate it for that. And because, you know, generally into magic shit on film. Exactly. And, you know, it worked. It wasn't like they did it and I suddenly went, wait, what? Like, yeah. they, you know, they built up to it in a pretty effective way. And then, I mean, you know, she sees the kind of um, initiation ceremony with the black goo coming out of the bust pretty early on. So, yeah. you know, that's there to set it up. And then she's talking about... Um, Hawthorne the uh, founder of the university having been into black magic um and yeah I mean it it was it was fine I thought it worked for me and it was fine it was a it was a neat way to wrap up the story exactly and also I think to a degree um remove some of the responsibility from the male characters which I also thought was quite subtle yeah in a way it's kind of making them um, less in control of their actions because they are as dominated by the patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I keep hearing the jingle in my head. <laughs> you can't just say like the patriarchy anymore. Not not. So we're post buffering the vampires. I have to do a dramatic pause. The say the patriarchy, patriarchy, and then do another dramatic pause. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that that was another thing that was quite smart about it was the fact that it it made it very evident that the male characters and, you know, men um, are as controlled and as victims to patriarchal norms as women are. Yeah, absolutely. Just in different ways. And it wasn't just one masked killer that Mm. were after these girls. It wasn't an an anomaly like it was in the first one. I mean, my God, talk about terrifying Mm. bad guys. Like, you know... Billy, um, but it's not just 
another Michael, another Jason. You know, it's not one guy that they can, the final girl can get rid of and you're done. Like, it's the whole male population of the university or of that specific frat house. And actually one of the most chilling moments for me is when um, Chris and Riley, one of the most chilling moments for me is when Chris and Riley are, they've escaped their sorority house, they're in the car and they're going round to the other sorority house looking for help and they open the door and it's you know it's happening there as well Mm -hmm. and for me that flashed back to a couple of really effective recent horror films it reminded me of us going back to Jordan Peele um, and it reminded me of The Invitation as well Um, you know this this reveal that not only is it not just one killer and there are multiple killers that are after these girls but also it's not just these girls it's a whole bunch of men and it thereafter all the girls and I found that like I didn't see that coming and that really like stopped me short I was like Mm. shit where is safe actually nowhere's safe very well put the other thing that I found really chilling, and again, subtle, was, so there's two things. I don't think it was that subtle that they create a kind of a full, um social network called Yip Yap in the film for, <laughs> Yip Yap, um, for the um, demonic, let's say the occult demonic killers mm. um, possessed by the misogynistic spirit of Calvin Hawthorne to communicate with the with its victims. Right? So you say it like that, Anna, and it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> and I'm not pretending otherwise. <laughs> like that's that's a fairly common trope, you know. Sure. We could do a whole three-hour conversation about social media horror films. <laughs> yeah, but. What I found was interesting was the language of how he talked to these girls, you yeah. know, because a lot of it actually is not that different from what you get on dating sites. Mm. You know what I mean? Because a lot of it is like very um, not even or not even dating sites. Jesus Christ, Twitter. Just look at the vitriol and abuse that um, especially women, but not just, you know, not just cis hetero women, but anyone who doesn't agree with people with um, a Twitter account and a lot of anger in them. Mm-hmm. The sort of conversations, the sort of turns of phrase, yeah. or, you know, um, I'm going to see how much of a fight you're going to put up or uh, we're going to bring you down to your knees. Mm-hmm. Just very intentional threats that always have sort of a layer of sexual violence underneath mm-hmm. them. It's not explicit, but it is yeah. if you are familiar with that language and have taught yourself how to respond to it in a way that minimizes the threat but doesn't address it directly if you see what i mean yeah i do yeah yeah the the language used is really clever and especially if you think about how so you know riley is a survivor of um sexual violence um she's been date raped and for somebody who is a survivor to be getting threatening um, text messages saying, I will bring you to your knees. You know, that is terrifying enough to 
any woman, as you say, if you read it within the context of um, kind of, well, the patriarchy, but especially the, the, the violent, angry, incel section of the patriarchy. Um, but within the film, for Riley to be receiving those sorts of messages with what we know about her past, that creates an extra kind of level for her character, I think. And one of the things that I didn't like about the film mm. um, was that there were... I didn't think that there was enough consistency with the support that she gets from her girlfriends. So they're very willing to stage this um, kind of dramatic, um, very kind of uh, theatrical protest to the boys at the um frat house in their talent show and they do you know this really confrontational um kind of dancing song and dance number about date rape and about um you know frat house culture and university um culture and um the threat to women um and they're very willing to kind of get on board with that and tell her to you know um what was the line you said it earlier it's this amazing line about um build yourself up bitch or something yeah incredible rebuild yourself bitch yeah amazing like all of that but when she is then trying to say to them you know where's helena she should be home by now and they're they're kind of poo-pooing her fears um when she's in the car with chris and she's trying to talk to her about um kind of hawthorne and the black magic now fair enough that's you know not everybody is necessarily gonna believe you first of all when you're trying to talk to them about like crazy black magic voodoo cult stuff but i i would have preferred it if when riley is trying to tell her girlfriend stuff that she is concerned about that the writing had made them more accepting and for them to believe her because I found it really frustrating that she was at the end she had to go to the frat house on her own so fine she meets um Landon, Landon her sort of love interest. beginning of the love interest yeah. yeah um but I would have preferred it if the girl's had all gone together because I thought it was a shame that it split them all off mm. and that was because she was trying to convince Chris of something and Chris basically didn't believe her and there were a couple of instances of that through the film and I found that a little disappointing you see I kind of find that quite interesting mm. because um the way that I read it now I don't know if this was intentional by um the writers of the film so it was co-written by April Wolf and the film's director Sophia Takal. I don't know if it's intentional, but I wonder if it is a way to give them a bit more humanity because this idea of universal sisterhood, I think it it's a, sometimes a bit pandering in films. Interesting. Okay, for my taste, especially in. You know, in this particular film, which is, you know, very heavily political, I would have 
seen it as a disingenuous if they had presented all of these female characters who are young women in college <laughs> as all on the, you know, incredibly articulate politically, incredibly articulate about their own trauma and other people's trauma, very supportive in all the right ways all the time. Because mm. I think that makes them less human because people and friends, girlfriends or male friends, it's very difficult not just to deal with trauma and assault, but also to help someone who has been through that. Yeah, of course. Because there is no such thing as a perfect victim. And there is no such thing as a perfect way of dealing with trauma and assault. And we've been sort of taught the idea that there is a perfect way. And if you look at, you know, even the news and the way that assault or um, survivors of assault or abuse are covered and presented, the, the doubt is always put on them. So I think that's actually one of the things that I really like, the fact that they fought and disagreed. The fact that they failed each other, but then took responsibility for that and admitted that, oh, maybe I wasn't doing the right thing for you. Not in general, but for my friend Riley, who did not need this, but she needed this. And maybe she didn't articulate it, but that doesn't matter. So it was the process of them tenderly realizing yeah the things that they needed and what boundaries they were not willing to push yeah. like riley was initially not wanting to put herself on that stage in front of the person who had abused her yeah but she did and she choked a bit but then she went through it but then something else was really triggering for her the fact that chris had put the video of that show online and there was a line that was very clearly heard in it um, towards the end that was really offensive to her. And it's like those boundaries are very difficult to define. Mm. And I thought that was the fact that it, it made them a bit unlikable. In a, I don't think that's the right word. The fact that it made them fallible. Yeah. Well, you used the word before, you know, it made them more human. It, yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, yeah, you're so right, actually. And it was when you said, um, you know, these are girls at college that I suddenly thought to myself, yeah, remember, you know, I'm 37. It's all very well me kind of projecting my... Um, my current kind of friendships and my feelings of loyalty and you know what I would do for my girlfriends now um you know this is 20 years ago um well 15 um but yeah you know it's you do have to think of the characters as you know they're still um they're still learning about themselves and you have to, you know, it's that old cliche, you have to learn about yourselves before you can kind of, you know, give to other people. And for Riley to have gone through the sort of trauma that she did at such a young age, you know, that whole thing about, you know, there being no perfect victim. Well, you know, to to be dealing with that at college um, and, you know, she's, she's doing all right. Like she's dealing with it pretty well, all things considered. <laughs> And I thought the way that, oh, I mean, we've mentioned Imogen Poots a bit, but I think, she was Jesus great. Christ, she was amazing. So good. She's so, she shows such vulnerability, yeah. but then 
kind of embodies very much the kind of the badass final girl trope. Although yeah. it needs to be said, there is not one final no. girl in the film, which I really liked. Yeah, same. Um, but yeah, she is so... She's kind of the layers of her performance, especially in the first hour of the film before kind of all the slashing really starts in earnest the regular her regular kind of life and just shrinking a bit Mm -hmm. at certain points when certain people pass her by you know she's doing really well but uh you can see how much effort certain situations take yeah and i think that's all the credit to imogen poots as a performer there's the scene um, when she encounters Landon at the library late at night and he's gone to go and find a book about jokes. He is adorable. Adorable. So cute. I hope those crazy kids can work it out, you know? Yeah. Um, he's literally like the Zooey de Chanel yeah. adorable <laughs> character that is horrendously attractive, uh, like so beautiful. Uh, and then also just very awkward. Yeah, and... he doesn't know what to do with himself. He's like trying yeah. so hard. He's trying so hard. Um, but yeah, so to your point about her sort of her her shrinking and the way that she just kind of holds herself in certain situations, stuff that obviously makes her feel uncomfortable, that encounter with him late at night, she started to build trust in him she you know she started to like him and then she bumps into him in this slightly suspicious situation especially considering all the crazy shit that's going on and I thought um it would have been very easy for Imogen Poots to have played that much more hysterical Mm. um and to kind of I don't know yeah, just, you know, to, to make it much bigger, much more dramatic. But she didn't at all. She, you know, she holds it all in. Um, and yet you can still feel how scared, disappointed, uncertain, you know, her panic. Um, yeah, I just thought it was, I thought that um, particularly I was think very that's, strong. I think that's kind of becoming a thing in Sofia Takal's work. I'm a big fan of her previous film, Always Shine which never got a release in the UK. It's from 2016. Mm. It's with Mackenzie Davis um, before she kind of started really blowing up when she was on um, that TV show. In the Dark? No, not Control, I'll delete. <laughs> halt and Catch Fire. Mm. Um, similar reaction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's about kind of a, a, a sort of um, a tense, somewhat codependent dark friendship between two women Mm. um, and kind of the competition within them and it's very very subtle and it's very uh, De Palma-esque and the performances in there are again very contained not big at all even though the themes and you know someone who was a less subtle director would have made them go up to 11 yeah and I think the way that Imogen Poots performs in this film reminds me so much of Always Shine as well. Definitely recommend that film. I'm going to have to seek that out, yeah. Um, but you're right. And then there's also the scene where she goes to the security guard where she's <sighs> concerned about her friend Helena's disappearance. She's been gone. Her mom hasn't. She's supposed to go home for Christmas. She hasn't arrived. Her mom has texted her buddies, which again is a very, 
very normal thing to do. Yeah. If your daughter hasn't come back home when, when you expect her, you text her girlfriends. Um, and she's the only one worried, like you were mentioning before, but also dismisses her. But that scene where she goes to the campus security guard to, not for herself, but for her friend to express concern and be like, she's not home. We don't know where she is. Her mom doesn't know where she is. Can you look into it? And being disbelieved and questioned and dismissed by the security guard. her That's the moment where she sort of starts to unravel. Mm. And you can tell that that's a bit much. Even though it's not for her, you know, it's not her experience. But it obviously reminds her. Again, of, she's not being believed. Yeah. Yeah. And again, she could have, you know, started shouting. She could have thrown something. She could have stormed out of there. But the the writing or the performance, the direction, you know, she, what the character does is she's so aware that if she does that, she will be labelled by this man as a hysterical young woman. And not taken seriously. And not taken seriously. And so what she's having to do is keep it in. Keep your voice level. Try to explain it again. Point out the facts. Explain that other adults are also concerned. Keep your um, body language passive. All of this stuff that she does so well, but underneath you can see her, as you say, starting to unravel and realise again she's not being believed. And I genuinely, genuinely think that scene and so many other details in the film that we've been talking about will go over the head of someone who's not familiar with that self-imposed norms in the the self-awareness of yourself Mm -hmm. and what will happen if that women and you know other you mean somebody who has the type of privilege that you can walk into somebody who has authority and tell them something and you will be automatically believed yeah pretty much yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah the fact that your experience or concern is not questioned It's it's kind of hard when we always agree. I know. <laughs> um, let's talk. Uh, we talked about da, 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 sisterhood. Eleanor, we talked about the good women. <laughs> That's we amazing. About the classic classic feminist podcast. Da, 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 sisterhood. Da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> There's one thing that I really wanted to chat about, and maybe because I've thought a lot about this in my work, but kind of uh, it really resonated with me. And again, I think it's kind of one of the things that nobody's really talking about is the Carrie Elwes character. Mm-hmm. He, when we first meet him, he he's extremely passive aggressive, but in a way that intellectuals are. <laughs> he's an academic. He is presented as an alumni of Hawthorne, so he was a student. He's now a professor there. Right. Uh, demonstrates a lot of love for his alma mater, so he he has a lot of respect and kind of a sense of ownership not ownership but you know this is his house Mm. that's the sort of attitude that he projects and he reads out in this lecture where we first meet him uh which riley and chris are rushing into he reads out a passage and i literally found the full uh this is 
I think they read an an abridged quote in the film, but I found the full passage, which is, a woman was an idol of belly magic. She seemed so swell and give birth by her own law. From the beginning of time, woman has been, woman has seemed an uncanny being. Man honored, but feared her. Man honored, but feared her. She was the black moth that had spat him forth and would devour him anew. Men, bonding together, invented culture as a defense against female nature. That last bit is the bit that's read in the film. Mm -hmm. And he uses that as a trick. As a man of letters, a scholar, to say, oh, is that written by a man or a woman? Can you tell? And he addresses that directly to Riley, very specifically. Because we later learned she had signed a petition to get him removed from his post because he was teaching an all-white, all-male literary canon, which is the majority of what's taught in most schools and universities. Yeah, especially on classics. Yeah. And she says, well, probably a man. He's like, well, no. (laughs) This was written (laughs) by Camille Paglia. And, you know, Camille Paglia is um, quite a controversial uh, figure. She's a feminist scholar, uh, and this is from her book, uh, Sexual Personae. And she has a lot of criticism and has written and spoken and appeared a lot and talked a lot about her critiques of contemporary and modern culture. But I thought it was so interesting that he used a feminist scholar's writings to justify him saying that quality is quality. And gender and diversity don't matter. Mm. Coming from a man who won't, who refuses to teach books written by women. And it's that, again, the subtlety of it. I just thought it was so smart. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this film is co-written by someone who used to be a film critic. Mm. So someone who thought and wrote about film. It's the fact that there is a canon that applies to all art, uh, films, books, you know, visual art, whatever. These are the classics with a capital C. This is what we're taught, and we're taught that this is the good stuff. This is not debatable. This is not uh, your opinion or my opinion. This is the canon. These are the rules. This is the good shit, basically. Mm. This is what you need to study to be able to be informed, be scholarly, have an opinion. Mm. And by contrast to that is where the idea of the guilty pleasure emerges, because you derive pleasure from something, say, watching films, but you know they wouldn't fit in the canon, so they're not really good, so you should feel guilty about enjoying them. Yeah, because really, you know, it's it's a bit of a waste of time. You could be using that time reading Plato. Yeah, but then that then become kind of creates a question of who is deciding what the canon is, which is what I really loved about the film, which frankly probably probably appeals to me. (laughs) Sure. But it's the questioning of what what makes a classic. And you know, if you we're gonna get real meta about it, is we were having this conversation earlier, is who decides that this film is good or bad? Mm. Is it someone who, you know, we've been talking for over an hour about the film? And talked about different layers of it and the different receptions and things we liked and things we disliked and the characters and the believability of it, the gore, so many different things. And it's who is paying attention and who is then saying, this is good or this is bad for X, Y, and Z reasons. 
And it's the who and the intrinsic bias that we all have. I think it would be stupid and unfair to say that we don't have biases. We're applying that instinctively to anything that we receive Mm -hmm. as media and art. What we were talking about before, there is an inherent responsibility to critics and people with a platform that are discussing and debating and critiquing any form of art to understand that and give it its full attention. Whether it's Black Christmas 1974, Black Christmas 2019, Fast and the Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Because then the idea that there's a line that Carrie Elvis's character says in the film directly addressing Chris and Riley of, he literally says, your parents, not you, your parents are paying good money for you to be taught the proper classics. <laughs> yeah. And it's the fact that there's so much meaning in that, in that phrase of, I am the one who decides what the proper classics are. You go off and read your Ursula K. Le Guin and read your feminist literature and watch your Agnes Varda films. But these are the proper classics. And it's people like me who get to decide what the proper classics are. And that's the thing that I think the film challenges. Mm. And I haven't seen anyone talk about that. That's fascinating. That was so like... It's funny when you just said like we've been talking about this for an hour I was thinking like it's amazing for a film that you know is like it's fine like it's good it's fine right but it's not you know it's not um there is um mixed feeling about how legitimate um or valuable like end of year lists are for example but so Black Christmas didn't make it onto my end of 2019 list it didn't it's fine But isn't it interesting that you and I have managed to sit here and talk about it for this long? And as you say, unpick all of these things, look at all of these different layers. And I haven't seen that anywhere else. I've barely seen any discussion really about the film that isn't dismissal in just very kind of top line reviews or even one line comments on tweets. Um, And I mean, I didn't know any of that stuff that you've just gone into about um the the kind of feminist scholars and um you know to it just makes me think like if i'm coming to the film with a very open mind and with a kind of um slightly uh defiant wish to enjoy it because i know all these other people didn't um what somebody coming into it with a closed mind who will just probably sit there thinking about their shopping list while it goes on in front of them why they're not kind of getting stuff out of it does that make sense yeah it's the intention that you bring to the film and you know i I think it's incredibly smart and layered. I think, personally, I think it sort of fails as a slasher film. If, because, you know, I'll be the first one to say, slasher films are not particularly my favorite subgenre of horror Mm -hmm. because they don't scare me. I think that the bits of this film that scared me tapped into the female experience in ways that I haven't seen slasher films tap into before. Same. That's why I thought it was terrifying. Because I could see that the people making it knew that the true terror was not the dude that was going to 
murder the young women in an inventive, creative way. And, you know, the angel in the snow death, pretty cool looking. But that's not the scary bit. No. For me. No, the scary bit is when sort of two minutes before that, she's walking down the street and there's a guy behind her on his phone and she's getting scary text messages and it doesn't turn out to be him he goes and turns and goes into another house and it turns out he's harmless but how many times have you or I been in a similar situation where you're walking down and you hear somebody behind you and you're just thinking to yourself please don't like drop in step with me please don't speak to me please don't come over like you know that is where the fear comes from and that's what I was saying earlier about um, reviewers who have said that it doesn't have any tension it's like again well where does your feeling of tension come from I found you know I mean you know that's the beauty of horror films in general is the fact that everyone's fears particular fears are so personal mm -hmm. you might find jump scares or um, slashers or you know masked men with big ass knife terrifying or you might find creepy empty houses terrifying or bees really scary you know i still can't fucking watch Candyman more than every couple of years or you might find body horror really terrifying clowns mine's clowns yeah there's so many different things that horror films can tap into because human fear is so wide and personal so some things might work for you might not work for me but that's fine. And it's actually, also, the, yeah. the fact that it doesn't necessarily succeed as a scary slasher film is in some ways in its favour because I will probably be thinking about this film for longer because of those more insidious fears that it taps into rather than it being um, a, a film that has made me scared of yet another crazy knife-wielding maniac. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting, oh man, I just thought of this. I'm just thinking maybe one of the reasons why um, it's been sort of rejected by, say, the, the horror influencers, that seems so weird, by kind of the, the, the established horror media, might be because its killer is not one person who you can turn into an icon. Mm. This is a bit of a tangent, but stay with me. There's been recently a uh, a figurine of Laurie Strode that's been released. Laurie Strode, the one of the OG final girls, played by Jamie Lee Curtis in the Halloween franchise, right? There was so, there was so much merchandising and stuff and costumes and masks and figurines and whatever you want of the killer think freddy think jason think mike michael myers think freddy krueger all of them there's no such thing of uh the final girl mm. to a degree so you know the icon is always the killer mm -hmm. and the killer mostly you know with some choice exceptions is a, a big man and sometimes it's kind of a, a hunk of a beast that's sort of faceless like michael myers mm -hmm. and that's kind of its power and sometimes it's a supernatural killer like freddy krueger you know i'm not dismissing those characters at all there are icons for many reasons but what's really interesting in this film and what makes it a bit less appealing i guess for that um for that for that audience is the fact that you can't make any of the 
villains into an icon mm. because they're a mass. Yeah. You know, the literal mastermind to a degree is the legacy of Calvin Hawthorne, who we only see as a statue, as a bust. Mm hmm. Then his, his minions, but, you know, they're all one and the same, basically. They even code them as such. You know, they're all wearing the same cloaks, yeah. they're in this frat. I was going to say, actually, um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure this was a conscious choice, but um, certainly at the end where there's the sort of big, you know, climax fight going on, I couldn't tell, like, which one was which and who was being killed yeah. by who because they are absolutely just identical frat boys. And at one point I was worried Landon was going to get murdered. Mm. Isn't it interesting that he's a person of colour? So I wonder if that was in any way a choice to make him stand out from the crowd a little bit. You know, he wasn't just identical. I don't know. I mean, I can't really speak with any type of eloquence about the African-American experience no. at all. I don't know if that was a, a specific choice. He might have just been the best actor on the day. <laughs> turned up to the auditions yeah no i've got i've got no idea but it, that only literally just occurred to me mm. that out of all of the guys in it he's actually the only one that looks significantly different because mm. all of the rest of them are mm. just kind of clean and chiseled and white and fair and i mean all let's can we talk about the frat boys for a second mm. i i have to say the actors who played them were very good at being so nasty yeah and nasty in ways that were quite subtle, like Brian, who we're told raped Riley, mm -hmm. our protagonist. The way that he fucking chews that gum got so under my skin. <laughs> literally. In my notes, I literally wrote all caps with six exclamation marks. That fucking chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> He's got obnoxious gum. He really does. He's just like this just oozing entitlement. Yeah. God, they're like, bless those actors because yeah. they're so good. I bet they had a lot of fun. I mean, they're all, you know, kind of all American Abercrombie and oh, Fitch yeah, exactly, model exactly. levels. Exactly. Yeah, they're, but, they're Abercrombie. And I don't know. Boys. Personally, I find that sort of level of frat boy handsomeness very creepy. Oh, yeah, definitely. I don't trust it. No, especially <laughs> not with a chewing gum like that. <laughs> so just to wrap up, you already mentioned how much of a fan of the original Breakfast Smith you are. Yeah. Do you think the film pays tribute to it in some ways? And do you think that there's, it's ultimately fair to pit them against one another? I think it does pay tribute. Um, there are certain kind of nods to it. Um, the... I did love that it was one of the frat boys that got killed with a plastic bag over his head. I thought that was really fun. Um, you get the um, sorority girl in the rocking chair in the attic, obviously iconic. Um, I thought the... Oh, the girl in the window. Yeah. Who, which I also, I loved uh, when we see her in the window and you see kind of her profile and her, the shadow of her and she looks like she's going to take off her clothes, be all sexy time because, you know, that's what sorority girls do. Of They're just course. in their underwear, yeah, prancing just in around front of all windows. the time. And then you see the shot from inside the house and it's her packing yeah. and then her PJs and <laughs> stuff. 
And I was just like, yes. And she's extremely hungover as well. So good. Just like, ah, oh, yes, this is beautiful. Love it. <laughs> um, I wondered if um, Lindsay being killed with the icicle was a nod to the glass unicorn, you know, the, the horn. Um, there's, they've... Um, the cat, so it's clawed in the first, uh, in the in the nineteen seventy four version, and they've they've got a girl cat, and they've called her Claudette. You know, if we think about um, April Wolf and Sophia Takal, Sophia Takal, thank you. Um, you know, these are two women who are interested and and kind of knee deep in genre you know um april wolf is one of the um hosts and creators of switchblade sisters podcast um uh sophia takal has she so she was first brought on board um by jason blum to um do the i think it's new year new you episode of the hulu series in the dark um so, you know, these are women who have, it's not like they're a first time writer and director who have been brought on board to make a low budget horror film or a mid budget horror film. You know, these are women who have knowledge and respect for the genre. And there's no way that they would have gone into this, um, you know, not having knowledge of, and I assume, although I haven't actually heard them talk about it, um, you know love for the original film and i think that all of those nods will have been done um you know through kind of respect and you know as a as a um tribute is exactly as you said i thought that they pretty much worked for me i didn't think any of it was um particularly kind of jarring or offensive i thought it was fun um i don't know <sighs> the thing about you know comparing sequels or um remakes or reboots or you know whatever down a uh, a canon back to the original ip is always just such a muddy subject um you know it's it's not a patch on the first one you know i can say that but did it bring a new spin to it yes it did did it um did it have something to say yes it did and I think, you know, the I would have been much more offended if um, somebody, and again, the, maybe this is what happened with the uh, 2006 version, because as I say, I haven't seen it, but I would have been much more offended and much more disappointed if um, it had been done just kind of flat and, um, you know, with no politics on its sleeve, with no interest in commenting on kind of... Um, you know female feminist issues and you know it it does all that and I think it's important that it did that and for me not for everybody but for me I thought it was pretty successful <laughs> thank you so much I mean we've been talking for literally 90 minutes about this film thank you for letting me rant for 90 minutes <laughs> mate that's the fact that we've talked for 90 minutes about this film and still could go on yeah. is kind of i think pays tribute to the fact that it's there's a lot to it mm -hmm. and the very knee-jerk dismissal of it is maybe a bit biased i agree i think the knee-jerk dismissal is unfounded and unfair 
and you know it's it's a fun little film and the fact that it's got 40 percent on rotten tomatoes and it's getting one percent from uh, and it's getting one star from the guardian i just think is completely well it's ridiculous hmm. that's all i'm gonna say <laughs> mm. <laughs> um thank you so much becky thanks again. anna